Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Helping Couples Heal. And we have an incredible guest today. Dr. Rob Weiss is going to talk about his books, Prodependence and Out of the Doghouse. It's a great episode, so stay tuned. But before we start, if you are enjoying the Helping Couples Heal podcast, please think about sharing the podcast with a friend or someone who you think would really benefit from this podcast. And also think about leaving us a review in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast. Actually, don't just think about it. Rather than think about it, just do it. <laughs> that there would be really helpful. Marnie's definitely right. And um, also, if you're looking for some additional resource, you can go to our Facebook group, Helping Couples Heal. Just uh, go to Facebook and search for that and click join and agree to the terms of the group. And you can get a lot of extra support there as well. Terrific. We're so grateful for all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for supporting us. And um, and remember, you can also go to uh, that Facebook group and you can even post suggestions for future podcasts or ask us questions. All right. Let's go ahead and start this episode. All right. Here we go. Welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie and I'm here with Dwayne. Hello, everybody. So we have a very special guest today. We're going to be introducing you to Dr. Rob Weiss. I'm really excited to have Rob today, and I'm going to give you just an official introduction. Dr. Robert Weiss is a clinical sexologist and practicing psychotherapist and the chief clinical offer at Seeking Integrity in Los Angeles. And Dr. Weiss is an expert in the treatment of adult intimacy disorders and related addictions, most notably sex, porn, and relationship addiction. Dr. Rob frequently serves as a subject matter expert for media, major media outlets, including CNN, HLN, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and NPR, among others. Dr. Rob is the author of Prodependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, Out of the Doghouse, which we will be talking about today, Sex Addiction 101, and Cruise Control, among many other books. He blogs regularly for Psychology Today and Psych Central. And notably, his podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction, is rated as a top 10 addiction podcast. Dr. Rob hosts a weekly live, no-cost webinar with questions and answers on sex and relationship healing. Over the years, Dr. Rob has created and overseen nearly a dozen high-end addiction and mental health treatment facilities across the globe. Very, very impressive bio, and we are thrilled that you have taken some of your time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me, and, and I'm honored to be able to help in any way I can. Okay, so a lot of our listeners, as well as clients who come in to take our workshop, our Helping Couples Heal workshop, there's, they all seem to have a universal question that comes up at different times, but eventually does come up. And this question has to do with, okay, 
uh, as an addict, I understand that I have traumatized my partner and I have a lot of work to do to rebuild trust and safety and heal this relationship. And so for a period of time, I get that I have to quote unquote, be in the doghouse. Um, and there's a lot of, I have to, I have to honor boundaries and I have to, I have to make different modifications in my lifestyle. I might not be able to travel as much. There's just a lot of things I have to do. And I get that. However, at what point does my behavior and even our relational issues get to be seen from a lens other than my addiction, right? And all the relationally offending behaviors that accompanied my addiction. So obviously that's a really big topic because it's a great question. I mean, who would want to be in a relationship for 10, 20 years if they were going to always have to stay in this place where everything that happens between the couple is seen through the lens of his addiction? Or, or betrayal. Or betrayal. Exactly. Exactly. I love this topic. I think it's so relevant probably to everyone who's listening to this podcast. And you wrote this wonderful book, Out of the Doghouse. So maybe you can start with sharing, you know, what was the impetus for you writing that book? Well, let me just go back and ask a question about the scenario you just created. Are you talking about a heterosexual couple? And are you talking about the male being the addict and the female being the partner? I mean, that's most often what we run into. So I was just asking if that's what you were referring to. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. I am, but I also want to say that I do see that dynamic though, even in same sex, same sex couples. So I think love is love. Yeah, exactly. And hurt and betrayal is betrayal and hurt. So I guess generally when we speak on our podcast, we are referring more to heterosexual couples where the sure male has been the one who has betrayed their partner, but we recognize that it's, you know, that this would likely impact anyone. Just being in the world that we're in, I think it's important to be clear so that everybody feels included. That's all, or knows what we're talking about. So um, Marnie, you know me, I tend to, and Dwayne as well, I tend to think a little bit outside the box and look at a bigger picture. And that's how I try to look at things. Um, So when I look at the idea of a man healing betrayal with a woman, I've worked 25 years. You know, I don't know if you know this. I've been licensed 25 years in California. It's like forever. And I have been working with, I've probably worked with a thousand couples over 25 years. And here's what I noticed. And the reason I wrote out of the doghouse is I have never seen a man yet ever, a man ever yet in 25 years, know how to make up to a woman what he's done when he's betrayed her. Because men typically think, well, I don't know if you want to go into this, but I think that because of how men are built sexually, even the ones who aren't addicts, we can compartmentalize sex. You know, we can go to a strip club in Vegas and be a part of a bachelor party and do whatever we do. And we'll say to ourselves, that has nothing to do with my relationship. And we mean it because it really doesn't have anything to do with our relationship because men can compartmentalize. Women, not so much. So that's why I come home from Vegas and she says, I thought you loved me. How could you do this? What about our marriage? You know, and and it's going to be crap for a long time. But I don't think that way. Like for me, it wasn't a big deal. So And I think for many men, the solution shouldn't be a big deal because they don't see the problem and they often see the partner as overreacting. So I'm trying to solve a problem that, you know, it's kind of like trying to solve a wildfire with a bucket of water, you know, and I don't even see how much of a fire there is. So I wrote out of the doghouse to help men understand what they actually need to do to help heal betrayal and also to understand how big the problem is. Would you say that when you started SRI, for instance, earlier in in your career working in sex addiction, that you recognized all of this, that you were as aware of this dynamic that plays out, or is that something that sort of came to you over the over the years? Well, now you're into the now you're into another book I wrote called Pro Dependence because 
for the entire uh, time that I've been in the field, we have blamed spouses for loving too much, giving too much, being too involved, um, helping too much with the problem. And that whole codependency movement permeated sex addiction treatment. So when we looked at the addicts in the past, probably up until about 2000, maybe a little later, we looked at the addicts as be having behavioral problems, right? They, needed, they were acting out, they needed to be confronted about the Nile, they needed to change their behavior. And so we looked at the partners because of codependency the same way. They're addicted to something, they're, mm -hmm. the person they're in love with. So they need to change their behavior and look at themselves. And, and that just does not work in our mm -hmm. field at all. So I think it took a lot of pain on the half part of the partners, a lot of courageous partners to come to us, the professionals and say, we don't feel like we're being treated well. We don't feel like we could, how could I as a spouse ever be responsible for the person I love seeing 300 sex workers? It just could never be anything that I've ever done. And of course, that is the truth. It's the truth that needs to be told to every spouse of an alcoholic or drug addict, any of them is that, and I want all the spouses to hear this, there is nothing you can ever do to make me act out, ever. Mm -hmm. You know, I can have a bad day. I can, I can, you can be ugly and fat and make me miserable and I can go play golf. You know, mm -hmm. the decision to go have sex with another person or drink or use, that's my decision. And this whole idea that partners should somehow look at themselves as being part of the problem never felt right to me, but it took the, the partners coming to us to change the field. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the addiction field was very centered around the addict. Our focus was on the addict and it took a lot of our attention and we saw this other problem and, and didn't quite know how to deal with it. And we've learned a lot in the last 15 years about the brain and about trauma. Yeah, I think it's a great change in the, in the field that we're doing. Well, just to say it, <clears throat> what I've done with our dependence is say, uh, really turn codependency on, its, codependency on its ear and say, I think the person who sticks by a troubled person is a hero. And if you stick me, by me by my most troubled times, I think you're just so full of love and kindness. You're like the person I want to have around. And because a partner's behavior runs off the rails when they're in a crisis, it's like, well, anybody could go a little nuts in the middle of a crisis, but you don't ask that person to look at their past, their history, their heart. You just support them because they've been going through a crisis. And when you do that, they move so much more quickly. So I think that is the, the go-to lesson that I learned from our field, which I've extended into all of the addiction work. And I think it's, it's kind of becoming a big deal. I agree completely. And I, I often say to clients, you know, we're, by, by the way, Dwayne and I are big advocates of the 12-step program, big advocates. However, not in the same sort of historical way that it was used in this field. So in other words, mm -hmm. the 12-step program were used in exclusivity is promoting two separate programs for the addict or the person who's done this, this, this egregious behavior, the sexual behavior, and then for the partner. So it basically says, you got to stay on your side of the street and you stay on your side of the street. But if the partner is literally in a heap on the side of the road, hemorrhaging blood because of specifically what he did, how in the world is saying, no, 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 you stay over there and keep bleeding. I'm going to be over here working my program and I'm on my side of the street. How can that possibly promote relational healing? But I'd also say at the time, you know, we didn't understand mirror neurons. We didn't understand um, how the uh, brain works in interactions with others. I mean, there's, there's a lot that we just didn't know. And so some of those assumptions were made without the knowledge we now have and, um, you know, came from a place of trying to, to heal everything. Well, codependency came from a set of assumptions that aren't true and have never been proven true. So, but they become a thing and then people think they're real and that's the way it goes. Right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that I think that what's happened is there are so many people that were operating or treating addiction, sex addiction from that old model. And I think it's actually in my experience, curious about yours, Rob, but that a lot of those people actually really had an issue with doing what you did, for instance, with really kind of recognizing what's going on in the treatment of partners and betrayal trauma and saying we need to make some changes, which is, I think, exactly what Dwayne and I have done, too this is a different topic, but there's a lot of therapists out there or mental health practitioners that are still really uh, married to this old idea and are failing to, in my opinion, failing to address what we see now. Well, I, I wanted to say one thing to what you said, because I have a little bit of a different take on it. I don't think couples in the beginning really can work together, not in the very beginning, because my experience is the betrayed partner simply says, you ruined my life, you ruined my life, I hate you, I hate you. And the person who did it says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was so sick, I didn't mean it. And that isn't really that productive, at least in my world. So I bring the couples together in the beginning to set some boundaries and so that they don't kill each other and mm -hmm. then separate them so they can get some support. Because, you know, when couples are together, they're used to leaning on each other. I mean, my spouse is the person I turn to in times of trouble. But this is one of the first times in these kind of coupleships when they can't turn mm -hmm. to each other. I can't turn to you because you ruined my life. I can't turn to you because you're so angry at me and I hurt mm -hmm. you. And we do need those people to build separate support systems so that they can better handle and manage the conflict in relationship. Oh, I, I agree completely. Actually, I don't know if I said something that gave a different a different interpretation, but I'm with you 100%. In the early stages, I think doing couples work, um, other than boundary setting, communication and things like that, is it's not productive and can actually be more harmful, in my opinion. You can't repair until there's some solidness in the the relationship so there's some safety and that definitely has to happen first and that they feel solid and they can take an angry person or they can handle feeling bad about themselves or whatever that is but you asked a question that we haven't really talked about which is you know how do couples come to how does the person who's been the addict the designated problem person how do they stop being the bad person in the relationship. And at what point does that make sense that that would begin to happen? I think most addicts will say that, you know, within six weeks or 90 days, they're ready to be forgiven and move on. And that's part of the problem because men underestimate both the pain the woman experiences when she's betrayed and the level of betrayal that sexual activity creates. Uh, you know, it's like, I'll give you candy, I'll give you flowers, I'll say I'm really sorry. And in three months, mm -hmm. everything should be better. And I see addicts, you know, I mean, here's an example, you know, the guy's got 90 days sober and he goes to his 12 step meeting and they all give him hugs and they give him a 90 day chip and good for you. And then he goes to his therapy group, which one of you guys run and he got his 90 day chip and everyone kind of rubs the chip and gives him good energy and says, good for you. And then he goes home to his spouse and he said, look, honey, I got a 90 day chip. And she says, <laughs> yeah. big fucking deal. So we've been married for 11 years and right. you've got 90 days of not seeing hookers and I'm supposed to be happy with you. And then he goes back to his group and he says, my spouse is awful. She doesn't support my recovery at all. She doesn't. And, he, and then he goes back to the 12 step. Like, oh yeah, all those wives are terrible. And, you know, because that's how all the guys feel. And this is not, this is not promoting resolution or healing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and they get stuck in that, in that loop and it becomes very hard for them to, to, to see that almost they get the, the feedback that there's got to be patience here. It's got to take some time. Well, I don't think that addicts are particularly good at tolerating feelings in general. And so at least without getting rid of them. And that feeling that I've been bad, that I've hurt someone else, that I have let the family down, those are really powerful feelings. Mm -hmm. And if you're not acting out as a way to make them better, I can imagine how much you'd want your spouse to be nicer, kinder, so you wouldn't have to feel so bad. But that's not the reason to have that spouse feel nicer and kinder so that you can feel better. You hurt them. So that's the challenge. 
And as a, as a therapist that treats couples, something that's really, um, for me, a, a bit of a challenge and an ongoing balance is I don't want to lose the couple. I don't want to particularly lose the person who might be so mired in shame that he runs out, right? So, because a lot of times the addict, when confronted with the reality of what he has done and the impact on the people that he loves the most, that shame can be just off the charts. And I don't, I don't want them to not come back because I believe so much in healing, but there is a real balance in how I'm able to address this with him and, you know, do it in a way that's loving and respecting the fact that yes, they're an addict and there's reasons for that, but also calling them out and helping them realize the reality of the situation that they did something really bad and they've hurt tremendously, significantly the people that they love. And they have to be willing to take the time and really jump in and do what it takes to create safety and, and, you know, rebuild trust. And that doesn't happen in 30, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. But partners want it to. So it's, it is at one end, you've got the addict saying, oh, it's been 90 days, please forgive me, even though I slept with 300 people. And you've got the partner saying, you know, why aren't you fully recovered now and fully loving me yet? And it's been 90 days. So you have two people who are impatient about different outcomes that are never going to happen because both of them want things to happen sooner than they're going to. That partner wants to see if she or he's going to stay. They want to see, again, that loving, supportive, doing their best person, and they want to see it now. And the addict wants to see that person say, I know you're troubled and I forgive you because I love you. And they want that now. And neither one of those things are going to happen. Um, so we, you know, the realities are what we have to inform people about what they actually have to go through. And that's why I ran out of the doghouse because I wanted men to see this is what you have to do if you want to heal the trail in a woman. And I even said, if you don't want to do these things, you don't have to be in a relationship with her. You can go find someone else. But if you want to be with her, this person you hurt, you need to learn how to show empathy, compassion, how to show up on time, how to be a responsible partner, because those are the bare minimums. Those are the things you should have been doing in the first place. Right. And then a lot of for a lot of addicts, they have that early childhood relational trauma that makes some of these things really challenging to do. Like they may not even understand that they're not doing it, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, to to be an addict means to be unempathic right? If I can do things that are going to hurt you, I have the ability to not know how they're going to affect you. To move someone from being actively unempathic, to be able to do what they want to do so that they don't even think about the partner, all the way to being fully focused on the partner's pain, that's a big swing in focus and personality. And, and that will not happen as quickly as partners want it to. Right. Yes, definitely. You know, something I remember that you said to me all those years ago when I was working at SRI, I'll never forget this, is, you know, I was working with all the addicts there and um, doing some of the lectures for the, um, you know, the intensive outpatient programs and getting to know them pretty well, I thought. And I remember saying to you, I don't understand all this conversation about the addicts don't have empathy. They have so much empathy. Like they're crying, they're remorseful, they're really, really upset. So that doesn't, that doesn't fly for me. And you said, no, 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 no. They are remorseful or they have empathy for themselves. They're not, they're remorseful that they got caught. They're remorseful that they're now in an intensive outpatient program, right? They're, they're remorseful that their partner might be hurt, but they don't have empathy truly for the partner's experience separate from how it impacts them. You know, it's funny you bring that up, Marnie, because I've said, you know, I think our goal as therapists sometimes is to move people emotionally from one place to another. And so when I have men who betrayed a woman sitting in my office, especially an addict, and they're just, you know, I'm, I can't believe I did this. And I'm just, who, was, who did I think I was? And she's never going to look at me in the same way again. And I think I might have let my kids down. What kind of father would do that when they start to cry? Mm -hmm. Now, most therapists are like, woo, I got that client to cry. They're really moving. And I, this is one of the few times I'll say, could you stop crying, please? 
because those are salty tears. You're, you're, this is all about how you're not going to be viewed, how you feel. I would be more impressed if you were crying, saying things like, I can't imagine what my partner's going through. I can't imagine how hard it is for her and the kids. I can't. That's empathy. And since they lack that, I'm not going to indulge their kind of feeling sorry for themselves because they put themselves here, like it or not. I think that is such a great distinction to be able to say that because I see the same thing as well and and experience that same thing. I'm like, this isn't really about her. This is about you. And I've also a lot of, you know, they have a lot of this early childhood trauma through that lens of shame. So they, and sometimes think if I feel shame, I must be empathetic because I see how bad I feel that that's empathy, right? But that's narcissism. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. But, that's what it is. but, they, but, they, yeah, don't, but they don't know that. They but really they don't know don't that know a lot that. of times. No, yeah. they don't know that. Yeah. Because and, they haven't. Well, as I said, if you spend so much time, years and years, avoiding empathy, and then you're being asked to jump into it, it's a long trek to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, lot of patience. I mean, I I think, you know, when I see addicts do this, it's in the beginning, you know, like what you said earlier, setting that structure so they can at least show up behaviorally, Mm -hmm. which gives them time to work on themselves to maybe down the road, show up empathetically and emotionally, but they're not going to be able to do that right away. It's not, it's not there. It's really hard. Well, they're in different places. I yeah. mean, you have an addict who's kind of feeling relieved because they mm-hmm. now can get better and there's no more secrets and they're kind of on their way to healing. They're just hoping things are get better in the relationship, but they're kind of beginning to open up and looking for healing and hope. And you've got a partner who's devastated and just shut down and angry. And mm-hmm. so they have different needs. They have different things they're going through. And it may be a while, as you said, Dwayne, before they're kind of in the same place moving forward. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of addicts do not understand partner trauma outside of, okay, I cheated and I hurt her. Obviously I betrayed our marital vows or uh, our, if they're not married, you know, this, this commitment that we had. Um, But the reality is until they, let's say come into your office, Rob, or they come to see me or Dwayne or come to our workshop, you know, oftentimes they are not hearing about all the dimensions of partner trauma, you know? So there's so many things after our workshop, I'm amazed each time at how the men are shocked and blown away by what we're teaching them. For instance, this existential trauma, right? Like their partner, it's not just about the sex. It's about, wait a second, I've spent my whole life, trust. And I thought my whole life, my reality is that the sky was blue. And then I woke up the day of discovery and I was like, oh my God, there is no sky, right? There's no sky. What's, how do I make sense of this? Like there's such contradictions to one's, um, but belief. I'm going to say, all I did was this, all I right. did was that. And it's not exactly. like I don't love you. And it's not like I'm still with this family. It's not like I'm, you know, all of that. Right. Um, and I didn't, and none of it meant anything. None of it meant anything. Didn't anything to me. You're yeah. Well, such is the life of an addict, but I want to just say all addicts betray their partners. You don't have to be a sex or love addict. You can be an alcoholic. You can be a drug addict. You are betraying your partner. You are gaslighting your partner. All the issues are the same. It's just not quite as personal as the sexual issues. Yeah. Well said. I want to read something actually, Rob. Um, It's from one of our listeners, something that he said, and it really, it sort of encapsulates what I've been talking about and what I've been asking you to talk about. And I want to know, I'm going to read it to you. And then I'd love for you to respond as if you were talking to that person. Like, what would you say to him? Because this, I hear this a lot. So sure. he said, he said, for me, I would love it if my partner no longer viewed everything I do or don't do through the lens of my addiction, because when it happens, it immediately invokes my shame. I start thinking that I'm always going to be seen as guilty, wrong, and incapable of growth because I'm a sex addict. 
I can understand that my partner is coming from a place of trauma and is afraid that I am still acting out in my addiction. It makes sense that my partner would be looking for signs of an active addict in order to protect herself from further trauma. What is interesting to me is that in my fellowship, I am proud to proclaim myself as a sex addict because I know that I'm accepted. However, at home, I feel shame for being a sex addict. Is this an act of compartmentalization by me? Is this part of my intimacy disorder where I fear that I will be rejected by my partner because I am inherently not good enough? Well, my response is you're way too full of drama is what my response to that would be. Because, you know, if I am at school and I'm acting a particular way and I go home and I act a different way, it's because I'm in different circumstances with different people. So I don't think it's really about the addiction. It's about how anybody would respond to conflict versus acceptance. You go to a 12-step meeting, people hug you. You go home, someone's angry. I, mean, I don't think that's, you know, it's just walking in different situations. But I also would say to this person, I'm a little concerned about your inability to tolerate your guilt and shame because you should feel guilty. And sometimes that leads to shame, which you have to find your way out of. But what you did does leave people feeling shameful and guilty. And the fact that your partner's anger or your partner's upset or your partner's avoiding you because they're so hurt leaves you feeling a certain way. That is not their responsibility. That's yours. How you interpret that, how you deal with it. Now, what you're asking really Marnie and Dwayne has to do with the timeline. You know, if it's been three or four months and I'm saying I'm still getting this angry partner and I hear this, my partner's still angry. It's been three or four months. That's why I wrote out of the doghouse because these men don't understand the degree of harm they've caused and how long it's going to take to heal it. So time is one factor. It's also a factor for the partners because, you know, I completely understand this. I really get this. But if you, um, Marnie, if you're my partner and you have really screwed up this relationship really, really bad, um, uh, I'm going to expect my thought is going to be, well, now that she screwed up so badly, I deserve to have a partner who's loving and caring and empathic. And now if she's going to make this up to me, she needs to be that person that I always needed her to be. Yes. And I think that partner is absolutely right. Mm -hmm. It's just that the trajectory for someone who's been so troubled to be actually aware of their partner's needs and present, they could show up, they can be on time, mm -hmm. they can say the right things, but them actually have a heartfelt experience of of what that partner's been through can be uh, a year or more. Mm -hmm. And so some of the partner's expectations do the right thing. Yes, you can expect that behavior, no acting out, go to meetings, get support, um, apologize when I've made mistakes, learn. Sure. But for the partner to think anytime in the first year and a half, they're going to get somebody who's loving, empathic, kind, other than as a manipulation for forgiveness, it's just not going to happen. And it's not because they don't love you. And it's, it's just, they don't, they've never had more to give and we have to teach them how. And Rob, I really believe that that kind of education is so important. And oftentimes in my experience, because I get a lot of clients that come in, both addicts and partners who have been to other therapists or other treatment centers, and, they, and they've kind of been around and they, they didn't get told what you just said. Nobody helped to set their expectations, right? Like nobody helped to explain okay, what can you expect, you know, and mm -hmm. how hard is it going to be and what kind of support can you get in order to be able to tolerate the fact that you are not likely going to get from the person who hurt you what it is that you need in order to heal and then heal the relationship. Even though you deserve it and you should have it. Right. But that person isn't making any emotional money yet. Until they start making some emotional money, they can't pay you back, even though you are owed. I guess that metaphor sounded right. So I just made it up. I, I think that's so important to let, let clients know that because when we're in pain, we want out so bad and so fast and we want to get out of it. We don't want to feel it. And the reality is, is like, this is just going to take time. This is bigger than the behavior. It's bigger than the addiction. 
it's it's about trauma it's interpersonal trauma and that just that just takes time but it does get better and and letting you know saying you just gotta kind of let go of that expectation for a while and move forward so if if we're asking the partners to be patient with the personality and emotional changes that the person might go through their addict, not the actual acting out that needs to stop. Right. They're becoming a better person. That's one of the issues, but the issues can come up in the other way, which is, you know, somebody is kind of still being still keeping secrets, still has a little bit of stuff going on, still comes home late, doesn't understand that behaviorally they're letting their partner down. And then they're coming to us and saying, well, I don't understand. I'm, I'm not acting out. I'm going to 12 step means I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do from the recovery part. Why has my partner, it's been eight months or a year. Now they should be. I hear the other guys, their partners are more forgiving. Why isn't mine? And it might be just because you're still coming home late. You're still keeping secrets. And if you're living that way, it's going to go on forever. Right. Those, those behaviors that have to be present, you know, if you're showing up late or you're not, you're not working to be present, at least the effort is there in the behavior, then yeah, definitely. My goal is to restore trust as a, as an addict. So I have to do everything, show up on time. You know, my favorite is, and this is my relationship, you know, I get called to dinner and it's like, but I'm on the computer. I'm doing something important. Don't you understand how important that? Yeah, but dinner's ready. Yeah. But and it's that this is a simple thing, but it's like, oh my God, this is what I need to pay attention to. Dinner's ready. My partner actually made it. I'm going to put my stuff down and show up and I'm going to be on time because that's respectful. And I'm not going to expect them to understand how important what I'm doing is because this is a time, especially during this, when I need to focus on what they need and put and get what I need elsewhere from recovery. Right. And it's so it is those those things, those they seem small, but like what you described is huge. It's, it's the, it's the foundation of a strong relationship that you have to work on and be present with. A lot of times addicts didn't grow up in that kind of home. Didn't realize that didn't know that don't even, aren't even aware of it sometimes. Like, it's like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute. (laughs) She said, dinner's ready. Go. You said you would take out the trash, do it. At the time you said you did it. You know what this reminds me of, Dwayne? You know, we in our workshop, we introduce clients to the concept of or couples to the concept of the collective socialization of men. And when you were just talking, Rob, about your own relationship and about how you now view and conceptualize what your partner's experience is, if he puts showing food up. on the table, right, showing up and and you get that. But a lot of men, this is sort of a, a whole other podcast, but a lot of men are socialized to believe that that's not how we show up in relationship. Right. Like I don't have to show up for just because she said that that dinner's on the table right now. I'm in the middle of doing something very important. So you need to understand that. And it's for the family. I'm doing this to make money or do whatever for them. And don't they understand? I've had many, many men. I had one extreme example where a guy said, you know, I always sit in first class and let the family sit in the back because they're making noise and they're playing and I have to work. And all the family wanted was dad back there to hang out with them. It wasn't about, you know, and he's like, well, I can get a lot more work done if I'm sitting separately from them. That's not the point, but that's how he thought. Right. And yes, so Dwayne, to your point, we have to educate people that the life they've lived in their families may be very different than a healthy life. Right. And that they need to learn. And a lot of times I think these folks have not been treated well themselves. And so they don't necessarily understand what it's like to treat a partner well, because they haven't treated themselves well and they haven't been treated well in their early life. And that, I mean, that's, that's where we really help and, th- and that it takes time. So here's my question. So 
if someone that's listening to this podcast today, you know, here's what you've said, and they heard the part about, you know, an addict in the first year of recovery is not going to have the proper empathy, not going to be consistent, not create safety, all of these things, like it's going to take some time, you know, in their recovery. It vary on the person, vary, but depends on the person. Exactly. But if the person hears that and they say, okay, here's my question, Dr. Rob. So does that mean that if I do everything quote unquote right and I'm sober after one to one and a half years, I can sort of, you know, I'm off the hook and you can expect, you know, we can expect that things go to a place of complete equality and, and I don't have to be careful anymore and, and work to repair and restore trust and safety in the marriage. You know what I mean? Well, I think what we're asking men to do in their relationships when they stop cheating, they stop acting out and they turn to their, is what anyone should do in a relationship. I'm not showing up on time and leaving the computer to join you for dinner because I want brownie points so you'll forgive me. I'm doing it because I've learned that that's how you show up for your relationship. And, and I think that is, you know, no one can keep up trying to make somebody feel better for that long. They're going to screw it up. Um, but if their goal is to be a better spouse, a better father, a better part of the family, that is a long-term process, not something that just plays out for the forgiveness part. I do want to say one thing that I, it's one of my favorite statements, and I just want to say it for the recovering people who are listening. You know, I'm friends with a colleague of mine named Dr. Stan Tatkin. And actually on our podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction, he did a podcast with me. And he talks about how you, how you prioritize your relationship when you make decisions in life. And this is basically what he said. And he talks about why is a relationship important? Well, because we live longer, we're healthier, we are more creative. I mean, relationships, we're meant to pair bond. That is, mm-hmm. that is our, doesn't always happen, but that is how we're going to do the best. And that's what research says. So what he says about partnerships is if you understand that your partnership is really important to your mental health, your social health, your physical health, your success, then you'd really want to protect your partnership because it's going to help you. And so in that vein, when I make a decision in life and I say, do I want to sleep with this person? Do I want to buy that watch? Do I want to go? I don't think what is right for me. I have to think, is this good for the relationship? Mm -hmm. And if I make that decision when I'm out in the world, keeping my partner in mind, wherever I go, then I'm always going to make the right decision because I'm not just thinking about myself. I'm thinking about us. He also said that people are inherently selfish and that in relationships, we devolve into me, 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 me. And that's when it falls apart because that's when you're not thinking of what is best for the two of you that'll make, hold on, make it, make the glue stick. You know, I really wish that there were teachers like Stan Tatkin and even all of us in schools and that this is how, this is the message that, that people are getting at a young age, like learning about how to be relational. I think what happens, unfortunately, is we don't get these messages. We don't learn. We make mistakes. We do it. I hate to say it. We do it wrong. And then we end up coming into therapy and hopefully ending up in therapy with someone who can teach. If we have the resources and the money and the time we come to therapy, otherwise we just struggle like most people. Right. Yeah. And we don't learn. I'm sorry, I had to say that, Marnie, because it's true. I have strong feelings about, you know, uh, we are very blessed to have a career and do the work we do and to have people have insurance and the money to come see us. But I know, I mean, this is why I give time away twice a week because I'm online twice a week for free, because I just feel like I'm not going to be able to serve so many people in person, but I can serve a lot of people free online. Absolutely. And so, as you said, on sex and relationship healing, I'm there every Monday night answering questions. And on, in the rooms, I'm on there every Friday night answering questions. And I've got two, 300 people at a time asking mm-hmm. questions. I know, think about it, Marnie, or, or even Dwayne, like when we were 
working on ourselves. How amazing would it have been to be able to call Claudia Black or call John Bradshaw or reach out to one of those people and say, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. But we couldn't afford that. We could barely afford to see one, someone who they trained. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea that people can talk to us or learn from us like this is such a gift to the community and especially to those people who will never be in therapy, who have three jobs and don't have insurance and they get to grow too. And that's what I'm committed to by doing stuff like this, as I think you guys are. Yes, definitely. I remember standing in the parking lot of Dwayne's office a couple of years ago after we'd finished doing one of our workshops. And we were just sort of, as always, amazed at how much healing honestly took took place in those two days, just in terms of shifting an addict's perspective of what he thought was the problem to, oh my God, this is so much bigger than my acting out. Holy cow, how did I miss this? And Dwayne and I were talking about it and I said, God, I wish we can do a podcast. I wish we can reach more people because not nearly enough people are going to be able to fly to California and do our workshop, right? And be here in person. But there's people all over the country and outside of the country that need this. And that was what, that's what our motivation was. It makes us, I mean, I can tell you from myself, this is probably the most rewarding and meaningful professional endeavor I've ever uh, embarked on is doing this podcast because the amount of people that hear things that are so helpful and validating and, and help a, 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 an, an angry addict, you know, shift his perspective from I've been sober for 90 days. What does she want to, oh my God, I've been sober, but whoa, look at the damage I've caused. Look at the impact. Look at how my, how, how my behaviors have been, even in sobriety, telling her to, when is she going to get over it? And I'm doing everything I should be and all of that stuff. So this is a gift. And I know that you are experiencing the same thing with the work that you're doing. And I think it's amazing. Well, I experience with books, right? Because when I write a book, books are a little bit slower. Um, the podcast, I mean, we have 500,000 downloads. So we have a lot of people who listen to that podcast and they write and they call, I have people who say, like with yours, um, I was going to act out, but I had the podcast on the car. And as I was listening to it, I just kept driving, you yep. know, but, um, you know, we are the school, we are the educators and you're right, Marnie, you know, when I started a podcast, I thought, oh, people are going to hear this in New York and they're going to hear it in Kansas. And they're going to, it didn't occur to me that we would have rankings in Singapore and Japan and Kuala Lumpur and England and Australia. And when you do this, a lot of people are listening and the, the opportunity we have to help people heal, especially in this media environment where, you know, it's not like Oprah's on TV anymore. There are very few places to tell the truth about healing. And a lot of the people I see on TV are really shucksters. They're selling, you know, the doctor, well, I won't say their names, but they're on TV and they're selling their books. They're selling their stuff, but they're not really giving answers that people can hold on to. So I'm so glad for this medium because, you know, how else would we ever reach so many people with the knowledge we have, but we get to, sorry, this isn't the topic, but it's, I agree with you, Marnie. Yeah, I know. I know we're kind of getting off topic, but that is really, really important. And also it tells our listeners how committed we are. Like the three of us sitting here right now, like I really feel like we share this passion. Because this is free. Right. We are really showing up to to connect and to be with and to witness other people's pain and to give them some direction and some hope. I think hope more than anything, because the truth is, yes, we're not learning this stuff in school. So people do unfortunately have to find their way through and hopefully find us to teach them these things and to teach how to become relational. But it's so possible. I know, Rob, that you, when you were in your addiction all those years ago, you because you say it very openly, that you were not showing up in relationship the way you would show up today. Well, I didn't even want to have relationships. I just wanted to have as many sexual partners as I could. I wasn't, that was about the most relationship I could tolerate was yeah. five minutes with a stranger. So it's a lot of years of work. Um, on trauma and abuse to get to this point, but I've been married 20 years and I will, I will say it, you know, my marriage isn't passionate every day. It isn't intense every day. It isn't, Oh, I love you. It's not, 
it's difficult and challenging and a lot of screw you's on the way there. <laughs> but I guess what I want to see about, say about long-term relationships this is my favorite thing to say is that if you haven't been in one, you know, let's say you've been dating someone for four months or six months or a year and they have a whole month that's really crappy. You're going to say, oh my God, they're such a jerk. I can't date them because look, this whole month they've been terrible. Who are they? But if you've been living with someone for 20 years and they have a bad month, it's like, ah, you know, no big, because that benefit of seeing someone over time and understanding that, that the choppy waters on the top may have nothing to do with the deep water that's flowing underneath. That's what you get in a committed long-term relationship. Also in parenting a child, I might add, yeah. you get that same experience. Oh, yeah. And that's what, you know, I, you know, kind of going back to the people who are listening, who may be in that moment where it, it doesn't feel like it, it's possible. Uh, it is possible. And it is a beautiful experience, but yeah, it's hard work. If you've been in a long-term relationship, it's hard work to get it right. And, and it's consistent work, but it's that deep water underneath, like you said, is so worth it. And, and if it's hard enough for, for anybody to be in relationship over the long period of time, right, then I think it's also really important to recognize that being in a long-term relationship with somebody who over the years has caused significant trauma, right, yeah. then it's going to be even more challenging. Right. It's it's not it's not easy. And that's what I think. I think it's important that we share with people. This is not easy. And we are not suggesting that it's easy. It's actually a lot of work. However, it's easier to leave. It's easier so to leave. much easier to leave. But but the outcome, the I mean, I have literally heard from so many partners over the years that as much as it was torture, and that's the word that they use, right. torture, yeah. they felt like like they, it would have been easier for their partner to have died. I mean, really, these huge statements. However, that in the end, I and mean, this is not every partner, by the way, but many have said variations of this, but I am finally with the person that I always would have wanted to be with, right? Like that's- And we have the relationship that I always wanted. Yes. But yeah. it takes a lot of work and a lot of patience and not everybody gets there. But I, I do want to say something to folks who are thinking about will they stay together or not. Um, I think about 80% of the people I, or maybe a little bit longer over 25 years have stayed together. And it, 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 I think there's a little bit of a dividing line. I'm not trying to tell anyone to leave or give permission, but it seems to me, and I'd be curious whether you guys have found this, that couples have not been together that long, maybe two, three, four, five years, even if they're married. I, I find spouses sometimes say, you know, I can see where this is headed. I don't want to live with an addict. I don't want to have these challenges. This is not what I signed up for. And they have an easier time going. Mm -hmm. But once a couple has kids and family and church and community and parents and grand and vacation, they, and it's, then they're 40 or 50, they don't necessarily want to start all over again. Yeah, a lot and of them feel stuck. Yeah. And they don't need to. Yeah. You know, this idea that infidelity means we have to break up is ridiculous. I mean, it means that you have to grow. It means a lot of pain ahead. And I want to say something about pain, Marnie. You know, we are so pain avoidant in our culture. We're all going to die. And dying mm -hmm. is going to be painful, but we don't talk about it. We never talk about it. And even with an international disease, we're not really talking about it. Mm -hmm. But I was looking at the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happening. And I realized, like, all of the pain that we're collectively going through, not so much us, but connected in a connected way, watching our culture in pain. Mm -hmm. Pain is what produces growth. Yeah. I have never seen in... 25 years as a clinician, maybe this many clients came in because they wanted to be a better person. All other 997 of them came in because they were in a crisis and they were in pain and they couldn't find a way out. But if we can take that pain for the couple or the individual and turn it into growth, that is, that's an amazing experience and they will be better off for that pain um, unless they run away from it. And you can get support through that pain. That's the other thing. You can get support so you can walk. And guidance. Guidance. And, and, it, and it's out there through the podcast, through therapists, through other people. Books. Books. But you know what? 
500 years ago when we all lived in little villages, you didn't need all that no. because you had grandma to talk to and there was the wise elder and everybody was around you and you always had people. It is the nature of our disconnected culture. And I don't mean internet. I mean the fact that people live in apartments and don't know their neighbors, you know, 30 stories up. I mean, it's the nature of that culture we created that that means kind of we have to pay people to help us. We have to pay because that's that's the world we live in. Yeah. And on that happy note. <laughs> well, let's let's just say to all couples that healing is not only possible, but it's better, more intimate, more real. Yes. But that innocent part, that never comes back. That part that, oh, I married you and I know you'll always have my back and you'll be the person out there who will never let me down and you'll protect me. And that's gone. Yes. Yeah. The and blind, that's, I the think blind very, trust. Well, that naive sense mm-hmm. of vows and yeah. commitment and love. That doesn't mean that, well, as Beyonce says, uh, let's see, uh, cheating is like, uh, or relationships, infidelity is like a plate, you know, uh, when there's cheating, the plate is broken and you can glue that plate back together, mm-hmm. but you're always going to see the crack. And I think that makes sense. You can have a, in fact, that plate will be stronger mm-hmm. where that crack was than it was before, but you'll see the crack. It won't be the same. And I think I, I'm really glad you said that because recognizing that is really important, again, with managing expectations and not to say, oh, well, if it's not going to be the same, then I'm out. Like, what's the point? It's the opposite. It's just what you said. If you really listen closely to what Dr. Rob just said, he's saying, yeah, it's never going to be the same, but can actually be stronger. It can maybe be even a little bit more beautiful, right? And 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 that's where the growth comes in. And so we all, I mean, the message I think that all of us want to share with the listeners um, out there is that healing is possible. And it requires hard work, but it can be better. It can actually be better than it was before. And you can be happy again. And I want to say that regardless of what you decide to do in terms of your relationship, stay, go, whatever it is, we also very much believe that you as an individual can and will heal. I want to throw out a little bit of um, advertising, if you don't mind. And I wonder if we can work together on this. So I've started an online educational series because my experience is when you're in outpatient therapy, you get really good connections, really good love, really good lessons, but you don't necessarily get that lecture every day that we give in residential treatment where people get to understand the higher level issues. So I started a lecture series online for couples and we're going to follow it with some strategic things like uh, conflict management and forgiveness. And we're going to do some hands. So we're about, a, I think it's a 10 part series, but I'm just thinking that this would be a great thing for the couples who are coming to the series to consider seeing you after, because we're offering the big information and the basics. And then I think going to a couple's workshop would be where they could do the therapy work now that they have the information. So I will say, um, uh, if you look on sex and relationship or seeking integrity, com you'll see information about the training series and um, I would love to support these guys in growing a relationship about referring folks to you for the couple because then they'll have the mind and the emotional part yeah and please make sure to share with us um, this information I mean I, oh, actually I guess we can just go on to the website and look for ourselves you don't have to take the time to yeah I'll put I'll get all the links and I'll put them on our website too so they can go to the show notes and they can they can link to that because that's such a, a valuable resource to have that knowledge and understand the context. I mean, it's so important. And they're getting it from me because yeah. I'm going to do those lectures. 
pictures and answer their questions. And for someone wondering, would we be appropriate as a couple to do that? Like, where do you, do people have to have gone through a disclosure process? You know, where do they have to be in terms of their relationship? Um, we're giving them the information about, so what are the lectures I'm doing? I'm doing sex addiction 101. What is it? Where does it come from? I'm doing pro-dependence, the part that partners have and don't. I'm doing out of the doghouse, how they can heal the relationship. Um, I'm talking about dependency needs and where the underlying trauma comes from. So these are concepts that are not only useful for daily life, but they're really important for the recovery process. You know, partners in particular, I think, don't get the education. I mean, they read every single book, right. but they don't necessarily understand, you know, what, how to make this, like what this whole show is about, how the balance of healing is going to go. And I think that information is really helpful. And then you guys doing hands-on, we're a great team. We are. Let's keep, let's collaborate and and continue to support all these people that are out there that are really needing our support and our our services. So if they want to find me, our websites are seekingintegrity.com. That's our uh, treatment center. The other website that offers all the free help, which is, we do free groups for men, for women, male addicts, female addicts, male spouses. I have, as I say, 11 lazy therapists that I've gotten to work and volunteer for free every week. So on sex and relationship healing, we give all that away and people sign up and go to groups and all that. And that's where you'll find out about all the workshops. But if you want me, just yes. write me at rob at rob at seekingintegrity.com because I make a lot of referrals all over the world for therapists and um, treatment centers. And, you know, we're not expecting everyone to come see us for treatment, but we do a lot of resource management for people. Cause as you know, finding people like you, it's really hard. You know, you yeah. can't deal with this and just go see a therapist. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast that, that topic. Yeah. You, you need to have specialized experience in this field. I mean, it's, it's complex, it's nuanced and yeah. And let me say, before we, we wrap up, I think this is really important. As we talked about briefly earlier, sex addiction treatment is very expensive it's, it's actually, I mean, for me, it's even painful to, to know how expensive it can be. We tell people get into individual help, you know, get individual therapy, go into a group, get into couples therapy, go to a workshop, like the one that we do go and do you know, free stuff online. That's free what, I, that, well, that's what I'm guess what I'm getting at. I'm getting at, mm. I wanted to say thank you to you because really those kind of resources are, to be honest, I think that sex and relationship healing might be the only resource that I know that is giving away so much in terms of free services. It's mm. really free services. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. So that's what, well, you understand I, I can't charge for them. So we might as well give them away for free, right? Because we right. can't treat people across the country. Right. So it, but it is for those people who don't have the money, don't have the resources, you know, all of that. And those people, I really like you, we have worked with privileged people. Mm-hmm. At least I have most of my life. They may not have had a lot of wealth, but they had enough money to put aside to get treatment. And I really want everybody else to get well too. Me and too. so that's, I think that's why we're all doing this. Yeah, Absolutely. So accept our thanks, accept our very humble thanks to you and to your team. It's really, I'm not, and I'm not just saying that to, you know, I'm not just throwing that out. I, I'm, I really, from the bottom of my heart, I, I feel that way. And I thank you. And I am probably speaking for all the listeners that are out there that are, you know, benefiting from what you're offering. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, uh, and back to you about this, back at you about this. Rob, take good care. Please stay safe. And thank you for being here. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Hope to see you guys soon. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. All the links that Rob was talking about will be in the show notes. So you can just go to helpingcouplesheal.com. And also while you're there, you might want to think about joining our newsletter and sign up there. We send out emails when we create new episodes and, and publish new episodes. So think about joining that and, and hopefully we'll be sending out some more resources for that as well. 
Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate you and we wish you a beautiful day. Take care.